Good evening, and welcome to the Sleep with Josh podcast. It's the podcast where you sleep with Josh. I am comedian Josh Yang, and every episode I read various pieces of literature in my trademark monotone voice to help you drift off to sleep. Literature like the dictionary, laws, various manuals, the different terms of services that everyone agrees to but never really reads, and other random boring ideas. Tonight, as we all stress about the U.S. presidential election results, let's take a step back and learn about the meditating act of gardening. I will be continuing to read The Manual of Gardening by L.H. Bailey. Second edition, published in 1910. Gardening is a quiet, calm activity and requires significantly less vote count statistics and electoral map stress watching. So relax. And if you find yourself enjoying this experience, please follow this podcast on your podcast player of choice and tell everyone you know that you sleep with Josh. Because at the end of the day, the more people that sleep with Josh, the better. Feel free to also follow me on social media at Josh Yang Comedy. Now sit back, close your eyes, and try not to think about global politics. Because you'll get tired of this podcast. Guaranteed. Manual of Gardening A Practical Guide to the Making of Home Grounds and the Growing of Flowers, Fruits, and Vegetables for Home Use by L. H. Bailey Second Edition, published in 1910 Chapter 2 The General Plan or Theory of the Place Section 2 The Plan of the Grounds 
underneath a diagram with the description. The plan of the place. The arrangement of the property in brackets, which is in New York and brackets, is determined by an existing woodland to the left or southeast of the house and a natural opening to the southwest of the house. The house is colonial and the entire treatment is one of considerable simplicity. Wild or woodland gardens have been developed to the right and left of the entrance, the latter or entrance lawns being left severely simple and plain in their treatment. To the rear of the house, a turf terrace raised three steps above the general grade of the lawn leads to a general lawn terminated by a small garden etc or tea house with a fountain in its center and two two and to two shrub gardens forming interesting and closed pockets of lawn the stable and vegetable gardens are located to the south of the house in a natural opening in the woodland. The design is made by a professional landscape architect. Main Passages One cannot expect satisfaction in the planting and developing of a home area unless he has a clear conception of what is to be done. This necessarily follows, since the pleasure that one derives from any enterprise depends chiefly on the definiteness of his ideals and his ability to develop them. The homemaker should develop his plan before he attempts to develop his place. He must study the various subdivisions in order that the premises may meet all his needs. He should determine the locations of the leading features of the place and the relative importance to be given to the various parts of it as of the landscape parts, the ornamental areas, the vegetable garden, and the fruit plantation. The details of the planting may be determined in part as the place develops. It is only the structural features and purposes that need to be determined beforehand in most small properties. 
the incidental modifications that may be made in the planting from time to time. Keep the interest alive and allow the planter to gratify his desire to experiment with new plants and new methods. It must be understood that I am now speaking of ordinary home grounds, which the homemaker desires to improve by himself. If the area is large enough to present distinct landscape features, it is always best to employ a landscape architect of recognized merit in the same spirit that one would employ an architect. The details, however, may even then be filled in by the owner, if he is so inclined. Following out the plan that the landscape architect makes, it is desirable to have a definite plan on paper, in brackets, drawn to scale, and brackets, for the location of the leading features of the place. These features are the residence, the outhouses, the walks and drives, the service areas, in brackets, as clothes yards, and brackets, the border planting, flower garden, vegetable garden, and fruit garden. It should not be expected that the map plan can be followed in every detail, but it will serve as a general guide. And if it is made on a large enough scale, the different kinds of plants can be located in their proper positions. And a record of the place be kept. It is nearly always unsatisfactory for both owner and designer if a plan of the place is made without a personal inspection of the area. Lines that look well on a map may not adjust themselves readily to the varying contours of the place itself, and the location of the features inside the grounds will depend also in a very large measure on the objects that lie outside it. For example, all interesting and bold views should be brought into the place, and all unsightly objects in the immediate vicinity should be planted out. A plan of a backyard of a narrow city lot is given in figure 2. 
showing the heavy border planting of trees and shrubs with the skirting border of flowers. In the front are two large trees that are desired for shade. It will readily be seen from this plan how extensive the area for flowers becomes when they are placed along such a devious border. More color effect can be got from such an arrangement of the flowers than could be secured if the whole area were planted to flower beds. A contour map plan of a very rough piece of ground is shown in figure 3. The sides of the place are high and it becomes necessary to carry a walk through the middle area. And on either side of the front, it skirts the banks. Such a plan is usually unsightly on paper, but may nevertheless fit special cases very well. The plan is inserted here for the purpose of illustrating the fact that a plan that will work on the ground does not necessarily work on a map. In charting a place, it is important to locate the points from which the walks are to start and at which they are to emerge from the grounds. These two points are then joined by direct and simple curves and alongside the walks, especially in angles or bold curves, planting may be inserted. A suggestion for school premises on a four corners and which the pupils enter from three directions is made in figure four. The two playgrounds are separated by a broken group of bushes extending from the building to the rear boundary, but in general, the spaces are kept open and the heavy border masses clothe the place and make it homelike. The lineal extent of the group margins is astonishingly large and along all these margins flowers may be planted if desired. If there is only six feet between a schoolhouse and the fence, there is still room for a border of shrubs. This border should be between the walk and the fence, on the very boundary, not between the walk and the building. For in the latter case, the planting divides the premises and weakens the effect. A space 
two feet wide will allow of an irregular wall of bushes if tall buildings do not cut out the light and if the area is 100 feet long 30 to 50 kinds of shrubs and flowers can be grown to perfection and the school grounds will be practically no smaller for the plantation. One cannot make a plan of a place until he knows what he wants to do with the property. And therefore we may devote the remainder of this chapter to developing the idea in the layout of the premises rather than to the details of map making and planting because I speak of the free treatment of garden spaces in this book. It must not be inferred that any reflection is intended on the quote-unquote formal garden. There are many places in which the formal or quote architect's garden end quote is much to be desired. But each of these cases should be treated wholly by itself and be made a part of the architectural setting of the place. These questions are outside the sphere of this book. All formal gardens are properly individual studies. All very special types of garden design are naturally excluded from a book of this kind. Such types, for example, as Japanese gardening. Persons who desire to develop these specialities will secure the services of persons who are skilled in them. And there are also books and magazine articles to which they may go. Section 3. The Picture in the Landscape The deficiency in most home grounds is not so much that there is too little planting of trees and shrubs, as that this planting is meaningless. Every yard should be a picture. That is, the area should be set off from other areas, and it should have such a character that the observer catches its entire effect and purpose without stopping to analyze its parts. The yard should be one thing, one area, with every feature contributing its part to one strong and homogeneous effect. These remarks will become concrete if the reader turns his eye to figures 5 and 6. The former represents a common type of planting of front yards. The bushes and trees are scattered promiscuously over the area. Such a yard has no purpose.
no central idea. It shows plainly that the planter had no constructive conception, no grasp of any design, and no appreciation of the fundamental elements of the beauty of landscape. Its only merit is the fact that trees and shrubs have been planted, and this, to most minds, comprises the essence and sum of the ornamentation of grounds. Every tree and bush is an individual alone, unattended, disconnected from its environments, and, therefore, meaningless. Such a yard is only a nursery. The other plan, figure six, is a picture. The eye catches its meaning at once. The central idea is the residence with a free and open greensward in front of it. The same trees and bushes that were scattered haphazard over figure five are massed into a framework to give effectiveness to the picture of home and comfort. This style of planting makes a landscape, even though the area be no larger than a parlor. The other style is only a collection of curious plants. The one has an instant and abiding pictorial effect which is restful and satisfying. The observer exclaims, what a beautiful home this is. The other piques one's curiosity, obscures the residence, divides and distracts the attention. The observer exclaims, what excellent lilac bushes are these. An inquiry into the causes of the unlike impressions that one receives from a given landscape and from a painting of it explains the subject admirably. One reason why the picture appeals to us more than the landscape is because the picture is condensed and the mind becomes acquainted with its entire purpose at once. While the landscape is so broad that the individual objects at first fix the attention. And it is only by a process of synthesis that the unity of the landscape finally becomes apparent. This is admirably illustrated in photographs. One of the first surprises that the novice experiences in the use of the camera is the discovery that very tame scenes become interesting and often even spirited in the photograph. But there is something more than mere condensation in this vitalizing and beautifying effect of the photograph or the painting. Individual objects are so much reduced that they no longer appeal to us as distinct subjects. And however uncouth 
they may be in reality. They make no impression in this picture. The thin and sere sward may appear rather like a closely shaven lawn or a new mown meadow. And again, the picture sets a limit to the scene. It frames it and thereby cuts off all extraneous and confusing or irrelevant landscapes. These remarks are illustrated in the aesthetics of landscape gardening. It is the artist's one desire to make pictures in the landscape. This is done in two ways, by the form of plantations and by the use of vistas. He will throw his plantations into such positions that open and yet more or less confined areas of greensward are presented to the observer at various points. This picture-like opening is nearly or quite devoid of small or individual objects, which usually destroy the unity of such areas and are meaningless in themselves. A vista is a narrow opening or view between plantations to a distant landscape. It cuts up the broad horizon into portions that are readily cognizable. It frames parts of the countryside. The virtuous sides of the planting are the sides of the frame. The foreground is the bottom and the sky is the top. It is of the utmost importance that good views be left or secured from the best windows of the house. In brackets, not forgetting the kitchen window and brackets. In fact, the placing of the house may often be determined by the views that may be appropriated. If a landscape is a picture, it must have a canvas. This canvas is the greensward. Upon this, the artist paints with tree and bush and flower, as the painter does upon his canvas with brush and pigments. The opportunity for artistic composition and design is nowhere so great as in the landscape garden, because no other art has such a limitless field for the expression of its emotions. It is not strange, if this be true, that there have been few great landscape gardeners and that, falling short of art, the landscape gardener too often works in the sphere of the artisan. There can be no rules for landscape gardening, any more than there can be for painting or sculpture. The operator may be taught how to hold the brush, or strike the chisel, or plant the tree, 
but he remains an operator. The art is intellectual and emotional. It will not confine itself in precepts. The making of a good and spacious lawn, then, is the very first practical consideration in a landscape garden. The lawn provided. The gardener conceives what is the dominant and central feature in the place, and then throws the entire premises into subordination to this feature. In home grounds, this central feature is the house. To scatter trees and bushes over the area defeats the fundamental purpose of the place. The purpose to make every part of the grounds lead up to the home and to accentuate its home-likeness. A house must have a background if it is to become a home. A house that stands on a bare plain or hill is a part of the universe, not a part of a home. Recall the cozy little farmhouse that is backed by a wood or an orchard. Then compare some pretentious structure that stands apart from all planting. Yet how many are the farmhouses that stand as stark and cold against the sky, as if they were competing with the moon? We would not believe it possible for a man to live in a house 25 years and not, by accident, allow some tree to grow, were it not that it is so. Were it, were it not that it is so. I don't really know what that means. Of course, these remarks about the lawn are meant for those countries where Greensward is the natural ground cover. In the South and in arid countries, Greensward is not the prevailing feature of the landscape and in these regions, the landscape design may take on a wholly different character. If the work is to be nature-like, we have not yet developed other conceptions of landscape work to any perfect extent, and we inject the English greensward treatment even into deserts. We may look for the time when a brown landscape garden may be made in a brown country, and it may be good art not to attempt a broad, open center in regions in which undergrowth, rather than sod, is the natural ground cover. In parts of the United States, we are developing a good Spanish-American architecture. Perhaps, we may develop a recognized, comparable landscape treatment as an artistic expression. And that is where we're going to end tonight's reading of The Manual of Gardening by L.H. Bailey.
congratulations. You just slept with Josh. But if you're still awake, please follow this podcast on your podcast player of choice and tell everyone you know that you enjoyed your sleep with Josh. Thank you and good night.